0: Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher
1: and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerouted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hi, everyone. I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to this episode of the Rerouted Podcast here on Ram Dass' Be Here Now Network. We are right into the throes of late August, August 25th at the time of this recording. And we are still in the pandemic. COVID is still very much a part of what is happening in the world right now, as well as the uprisings and as well as the protests um, and the Black Lives Matter uh, social justice and, and equity movement toward racial equity for for all beings. And. I wanted to first name my pronouns just as she, we, and us, which is a new learning for me because I feel like it's more collective and more in tune with what's in my heart in terms of the way in which um, a lot of folks might say in other cultures, you know, how are you? And they respond to say, we are well or we are not well. And that's different from the way we think of in that individualistic sort of mindset of I, me, mine, as opposed to the collective place that, um, that we can kind of support one another. And so I just wanted to say that. And I also wanted to name that I'm on Nipmuc land here in Massachusetts, where this, um, podcast is being recorded. And that as someone who grew up here, uh, I'm a settler on this land. I am not native and indigenous to this area, that I am someone whose ancestors came from uh, Europe and Italy, and then also who has ancestry um, from Haiti and from the Dominican Republic, which goes back to Africa and to Spain and, um, and the Moors. And so With that, I sort of bring you this intersectional lens to talk about what's happening, not only in our world culturally now in this moment of COVID and the uprisings, but also to talk about what's happening with us and in our brains and society and culturally, the ways in which we have developed Certain ways of relating and attaching. And to that, we have Dr. Bruce Perry with us here today. He's the senior fellow of the Child Trauma Academy, a community of practice based in Houston, Texas, and professor in the departments of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern in Chicago. And He's the author of a book that you may be familiar with, which I highly recommend if you haven't already read it, uh, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, as well as other books and papers and all kinds of things. And he's working on a new piece of writing that he'll share a little bit about today. And the the thing that I want to sort of unpack is that Dr. Perry has conducted both basic neuroscience and clinical research. And the piece on neuroscience has, has examined the effects of prenatal drug exposure on brain development, the neurobiology of human neuropsychiatric disorders, and the neurophysiology of traumatic life events. The neurophysiology of traumatic life events and basic mechanisms related to the development of neurotransmitter receptors in the brain. And his clinical research and practice has focused on uh, high-risk children. And in the last 10 years, he's been focused on integrating emerging Emerging Principles of Developmental Neuroscience into Clinical Practice. And I could go on and on, but I want to welcome Dr. Bruce Perry here to the Rerooted Podcast. So nice to see you again.
2: Thank you, Francesca. I'm happy to be here. Um, I I have to say, you mentioned uh, the book I'm working on, and literally this morning I was writing about visiting uh, a, a Maori community And one of the things that was so striking to me was when when it was a a ceremonial greeting process that involved uh, singing me onto the land, greeting me on the land, and then for the next two days, uh, spending time with that community. And one of the things that was so fascinating for me was that when anybody got up to speak, they would kind of stand in a place in this big building uh, so that everybody could see them. But the first thing they did was exactly what you did, is they kind of walked through their own, who they were in context of where they came from, who their ancestors were. And, you know, my grandfather was so-and-so and my great-grandfather was so-and-so. And, and uh, so it it was, uh, as you were uh, doing the introduction, I thought of that and thought how important it is that that's part of the way we we can actually enter into healthy relational connection with people is to understand how did you get to this point and how did I get to this point and and it really I think helps define the the, the parameters of a relational interaction.
1: Mm, so beautiful to. Sort of hear that, and and I'm curious about your experience uh, there with the Maori people, and and, and sort of what brought you there, and what you were writing about, and things like that. Is that something you want to share a tiny bit about in terms of your piece of writing now, or should we should we leave that?
2: I'm working on a book with, and I I, by the time this is aired, it's probably going to be public, but I probably I shouldn't say anything
1: right now. Uh huh. That's fine. I understand. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> and um it should yeah come out in the spring if i finish it um but a big part of it is about uh it's about uh, understanding the impact of trauma on the individual and how that influences the way we think feel behave and really not just from the a medical lens it's really it's more focused on the pervasiveness of of traumatic experiences in, in our, in life mm. and how that impacts our communities and our support and our society. And, um, and, and it's, there's a lot of conversations about um, different aspects of how that influences your risk for mental health issues or physical health issues or social health issues. And there's a lot of conversation about inequities, uh, racism, structural racism and things that I think are of interest to people that are listening to this yeah so well. and, the, and the chapter I'm working on right now is about the power of of community and, and how that's so undervalued in our current western formulations of mental health services um, you know we think you have to go to the the doctor to get uh, healed and, and part of what I was learning, I'm writing about how I, I started to learn about the power of connectedness and that, that in the absence of connectedness, if you didn't have connection to family and community and culture, you could go to the best psychiatrist in the world and get all the evidence based practices and you would not get better. Mm. But if you were in a connected community, you most of the time could heal without seeing any doctoral level clinician. And so I was seeing these two parts of this spectrum and realizing that, you know, here I am, I have doctoral degrees and I've been trained in the medical model. And I thought I was doing all the stuff to help uh, people recover from their traumatic experiences. And we were not very effective. And um, and when we started to look carefully at what was going on, it turns out that the kids that were um, in safe and stable environments were getting better, and the kids that were not weren't getting better. Right. And, um, and, it, and the impact of our intervention was a tiny fraction of what was really making them get better and of course it was kind of a sobering observation that you know i'm really not that helpful
1: yeah yeah they need a they need a stable home environment they need a they need to have food they need to have somebody who cares about them that they feel connected to
2: yeah exactly so i i had been asked to go to new zealand to talk about my research and i said listen i'll come if you if you can figure out and how i can spend some time with some Maori uh, it. And Mm -hmm. so I went to a community far north in the, the, on the North Island and spent a couple days there. And it was, it was an amazing experience. Mm.
1: Yeah, I can tell you're even touched by it now as you're thinking back on it.
2: It was was amazing. I mean, one of the most interesting parts of it was that, I mean, I keep returning to that experience you know, years and years and years later and and realizing that I was being taught something, but only 20 years later did I realize what it was. Mm. So, for example, I, I literally, while I was writing this, I finally had the realization that the way they handled my education wasn't by sitting down with me and having me and talk talking with me about, oh, this is what we believe and this is what we do, and our view of health is disconnection from nature, disconnection from community. They didn't say any of that, really. It, it wasn't at all like a Western visit with a Western healer. You know, if you come see me, come visit me and come to my lab or come to my office. You sit down across the desk from me and we might chat, we might walk down and get coffee, but we're talking the whole time. They taught me by immersing me in, in their community. Yes. And showing me. I spent two days in a, in a, uh, with their community and you know, that when they have these ceremonial experiences, the entire small community comes together for the whole day and the whole night and the next day. And we had every meal together as a community. We slept together. Everybody we slept in this huge building. And it was more snoring than you can even imagine. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was a huge communal experience. And then at different times, different elders would take me and walk out in, into the, basically into the forest and and talk about, you know, this tree and, you know, t- just tell me stories. And I, you know, it was something at the time I think, you oh, know, this is quaint. But I, I didn't quite realize what a gift it was that they were telling me about the healing properties of the rhythms of, you know, they're saying, stop, this is the sound of the wind. And, and, you know, I would start, I would feel different, feel more regulated. And right. it wasn't until later on, it realized oh, that was like, I was so, sometimes I got oh, it was the sound of the stream, the bubbling of the stream, the wind, and seeing, and literally the visual image of the leaves going back and forth in this rhythmic thing. That was, that was the medicine.
1: Yeah, beautiful. And, and and his pointing out that to you allowed you to have an awareness and experience of you actually being there with it, as opposed to being in your left brain, maybe about saying, well, when are we going to talk about which plant you use for this ayahuasca ceremony or something, which isn't obviously what they do, but you know what I mean?
2: And, and so Francesca reminded me of, of, you know, when you have a little child and you point to something, and go, that's hot. And don't touch, that's hot. And as soon as you look away, every little child's going to go up and touch you. And then they go, okay, I know what you mean. That's hot. And and you're like, I told you that's hot. Why did you touch that? And so our, our Western way is like, tell people. They, their way was to bring me close to heat and let me experience it w- without getting burned.
1: Beautiful, yes. And, and I think that that's, really part of what this whole idea of, because I I really don't like as a person who's, you know, been trained in, 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 in mindfulness modalities and whatnot, like, I really don't like this mindfulness thing where we're just sort of checking out, being aware of whatever it is, and then trying to be calm that really what it is, is arriving in the present moment and just seeing what's actually here, opening up to the present moment to so take in those leaves swaying, take in, oh, I have a sense door of my ears that can hear a babbling brook if I'm open to noticing that there's a babbling brook here and then notice what happens in my nervous system and to the way in which I'm breathing when I open to that direct experience. And this idea of allowing your own self to receive the direct experience in that kind of a setting, to me, what I hear you saying is that it felt okay You felt like he was a trustworthy person that you could open up to in terms of that receiving and vulnerability. And that in a way, I feel as though in our culture, when we come back here, forget about not valuing so much that connective communal, you know, sort of land based, you know, way of being that you describe culturally overall, but that, but that there's something there that almost makes us push away from trusting that it might be okay to have that kind of space and that that kind of space itself in the holding container of a connected relationship would itself be the healing. And I'm wondering what you have to say about that in terms of what we are or are not doing right or could do differently. If we perhaps had a little bit of faith that something transformative and beneficial could emerge from that kind of a space.
2: You know, I I think one of the things that, that that experience allowed me to see as well was the ability to continue to benefit from moments when you're fully present. And so it's not as if they, I think one of the big fears of so many people is um it, it has to do with they, they want to get something out of the minute of the moment I, what do I take out of this as opposed to just be and the interesting thing is most people don't realize that when you actually learn from an experience you don't learn from the experience you learn from reflection on the experience So that's if if you don't think about uh, and think back towards what happened when I went over and touched that hot thing, you're you're not going to learn. You learn it because you revisit it and you revisit it and you revisit it in your head when you have reflective moments. And this is one of the things that we're terrible at in our culture is that we're so over- um we are so sensory um, overloaded that we pull ourselves out of that most reflective moments and I you know I think that again I, I I think that many people end up using kind of mindfulness as a time to calm down and be reflective as opposed to the the the, the reality of just being in that moment. Mm. They want to get something out of the moment. And so what they're getting out of the moment is I'm going to reflect on something and I'm going to pull a reflection out of this moment. <laughs> and I will have grown as opposed to like, just let the wind. Right. Flow. over, and, and that's, that's a very hard thing to do with a lot of us. We're, we are so much of our world is getting us to be goal oriented you know, get in and get that trauma narrative. You know, you got to get you know, drill down in, and you're not going to do anything positively therapeutic. You don't talk with them. If you just hang out with the kid and look at them and smile, how can that be therapeutic? You mean you just sat there with the kid? And what did you say? What did they say to you? And you know, it's like, eh. I didn't want to talk. It's okay. I didn't want to talk either. Right. But it's this. This is something that we we are not good at teaching, and I think we're not. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's part of what drives me a little bit crazy about our, our Western way of mental health service delivery and mental health, um, just our mental health system. You know, we, we even talk about evidence, you know, evidence-based this and evidence-based that. We're always trying to get, you know, measure things and measure, and I'm not opposed to measurement. It's just that I think that if you are so goal-oriented, in, in the interaction, you're basically defeating the power of the moment. A- every time you try to get something out of the moment, you're taking the magic and the power, up, the transformative power out of that moment. And so we, we, we end up being inefficient in our efforts to help. And, and over time, what you realize is if you do sort of traditional therapeutic work, you find that you've stumbled into a therapeutic moment. It's it's like it by by accident it's sort of yeah. like wow, and and you and you realize wow that was powerful, but then you didn't
1: it, it wasn't by like, accident exactly. <laughs> well, you know Jean Jean Genlin, the uh, philosopher slash Rogerian, you know, uh, sort of the founder of focusing. That I you know I have a couple of different certifications in that, and and just really appreciate the felt sense and what's emergent within us when we sort of tune into the present moment. Sort of talks a lot about like when you were looking at what the evidence, be, what were the outcomes? Like who was successful in therapy? And his noting was that, well, they, the people who were successful had a capacity to access what he called the felt sense. Yeah. And those who didn't and weren't successful, no matter what you threw at them, wasn't, wasn't really moving. Yeah. And to your point, it's that capacity to maybe be present, be curious, be with whatever's here. And I think what's so interesting, what you're saying is that, in the case of the child and and you, which you write about so beautifully in the book that I referenced earlier, is that there's something just about being witnessed, being allowed, being received in whatever the here has that
2: is healing. And, and you know, the nature of our physiology as a species is so much about belonging and that feeling that you belong here with these people makes your physiology quieter. It it makes uh, neuroendocrine things happen that make your organs more flexible, more adaptive, more more functional. And when you don't feel as if you belong, when you're getting signals that you're not seen, you're not heard, you're not, it literally makes your physiology different. It makes you more distressed. And when that happens, that increases the risk for disconnection, which is, and again, going back to my Maori colleagues, and the same thing with my Blackfoot and my Cree teachers. The, the conceptualization of disease is disconnection it's disconnection from so community, or disconnection from you're out of sync with nature and 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 all of the healing processes involve reconnecting with the rhythms of nature reconnecting with the people of that you belong with and and having that uh acknowledged on in both a cognitive way, you know, there's a, there's a narrative to it. Uh, there's the powerful emotional part of being with people while you do this. And then all of these the ceremonial things involve pattern, repetitive, rhythmic activities, dancing, singing, um, you know, all touch, all kinds of somatosensory things that were um, bonding and connecting. And so when you look at the, you know, the, the ceremonial processes, Used for illness or struggling with depression or with dealing with the trauma of the loss of a child or the or a, a death in a war or a hunt. They all involve those three elements. You know, there's storytelling that, that sort of gives it a cognitive framework, makes sense of it in our world. There's connect, reconnecting. You do this with people and then you do these rhythmic regulating things. And if you look now at at sort of trauma treatment in the modern world, all of the best data is converging on the power of those three uh, elements combined in different ways, somatosensory, relationally based work, and and then having sort of a a cognitive script that makes sense out of it.
1: Yeah, I love what you're saying because, you know, this sort of naturally for me flows into. how we can use, and you, you obviously have the neurosequential, um, clinical model that you teach and do trainings in that people can, can learn more about if they want to sort of unpack some of like how do we how do we sort of start integrating this in our practices so certainly pointing people to that um, but how do we think about these things right like as you're saying this i'm visioning you know yeah well guess what when there were folks who were kidnapped and brought over here and enslaved for centuries one of the things that was taken away was their drums one of the things that was taken away was you know and 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 then we look at things like you know, song and, and dance as you're talking about and and the way in which the collective and the community um, sort of is rebuilt as a scaffolding, if you will, in a sort of um, subversive way, if you will, even in ways where, you know, I've had to sacrifice uh, my spiritual practices, my connective practices um because I've come here against my will, but now I'm being baptized as a Christian and I'm being put into churches. How am I going to use the church and the song and the choir and, you know, to sort of recalibrate what I know I need in order to, to, to be resilient. And, and I just wonder if you could sort of talk about how you see this playing out in terms of the racialized society that we're in now and, and the way in which black Americans are finding ways to sort of stay perhaps resilient or always have really, um, and the ways in which perhaps, for lack of a better word, Americans who've acclimatized to become white or assimilate and whatever, um, have had to give up sort of these practices in order to, quote unquote, make it as white Americans. Can you unpack some of this in terms of racial lines now?
2: Yeah, well, there's a lot in there. I know,
1: just some a little thoughts,
2: <laughs> so reflections. The, 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 I think that the, the thing that for me that's so both heartbreaking and heartening is that when colonization or slavery came at, in, into these communities, these indigenous communities, or the you know destroyed the you know the uh, the families in Africa and who were stripped away from their culture stripped away from their community, stripped away from their family, and brought over to North America, um, there was this powerful fragmentation of the anchors that help you feel like you belong and and keep you healthy. And so if you look at any First Nations community, any indigenous community across the planet, that's been colonized and had this sort of cultural fragmentation. Um, There's two things that are present. One is they are resilient because to survive that in literally decades and generations and generations of intentional, both genocide and then cultural genocide, that's pretty resilient to still be here. The, The second thing is that because of this sort of, fragmentation of the, the, these physiologically meaningful anchors of family and culture, uh, there are higher rates of trauma-related or stress-related health and mental health issues. And so if you look at suicidality, you look at um, physical health risk, you look at risk for all kinds of other things in those groups, and that have been colonized or marginalized uh there's there just is more if you will physiological demand there's just been a heavier load a bigger burden that they've had to carry as a people and as a result it's been harder on their health and and then what you see is that in places where there is sort of the reweaving of some fragment of Greek culture as you say it could be elements of assimilation it could be uh basically taking some of the you know the scottish folk songs and turning that into the blues and uh taking gospel music and using that to provide rhythmic repetitive stuff Creating, a, as we're writing about in this book, the church home, where you spend hours and hours, and, and you get relational connections, and you get, you know, all kinds of strengths from the community are are present, and you belong to your church home. This helps you uh, basically survive and thrive in these environments that are otherwise pretty harsh. And now the. The, the sad thing about that is that, you know, these are transgenerational processes and they influence the physiology of the individual in, in a given generation, but they also influence that individual's chromosomes. So that, and this is one of the wonderful adaptive things about human beings is that when we're put in certain situations of duress, we can go through literally physiological adaptations. We'll turn certain genes off and we'll turn other genes on and we'll be, it'll increase the probability that we'll survive these harsh conditions. But that will get passed to the next generation, even if those harsh conditions don't exist. So you'll be physiologically primed for a harsher world than you may be growing up in. And that, it, it, Makes you have a mismatch between kind of the what's going on in the world now and what your body's expecting, and so that can increase again risk for uh, a variety of physical health things like diabetes, hypertension, mm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Things that are overrepresented in those marginalized populations. So mm-hmm. if you look at Maori, Aboriginal, Cree, African American in the, in North in the U.S all of them have increased rates of these physical health issues that are connected to your stress responses. Now, the good news is that you can, if you have enough generations of stability and predictability and nurturing and belonging, you can kind of, you, your physiology gets back more towards uh neurotypical or or neuroregular or, or typical regular. the unfortunate thing is that what we don't what we haven't appreciated until I think more recently is that even though there is no slavery anymore even though there have been laws passed that are supposed to uh promote equality equality does not exist and individuals who are growing up in our society who are uh, of either indigenous or african-american or other there are other groups as well that are marginalized you will experience all day long little you know people use the term microaggressions i don't Really know that micro is the right term. These are these are pretty overt aggressions, but they're so pervasive that you yourself frequently don't even you're not even aware of. It. And but your body is. And so what happens is you're continually getting these nonverbal and sometimes overt verbal signals, these subtle signals that you don't belong. And when your brain gets the signal that you're not part of the group. It activates your stress response. So you're continuing to get these little signals that keep those chromosomal epigenetic changes from generations ago alive. And so your risk persists from generation to generation as opposed to fading. Now that's not universal, but that's part of the issue. Right now we have uh you know overrepresentation of people of color in the juvenile justice system, and the criminal justice system, and the foster care system, and all of these systems that are supposed to be helping our society are basically, in one way or another, carrying forward residue of structural racism. Mm. And and until we address that and change that, um, all people of color are going to be walking around in what many people will view as this free and equal society. Uh, having physiologically unequal experience.
1: Right. Right. Anyway. Not feeling safe. Feeling right. as though... And, and literally, whether it's aware or not, like, I mean, I had some experiences actually last week that I can still feel are physiologically in my body that... Um, I think I, and I wrote about it and I think I said, I can feel my telomeres fraying and my, you know, my, and it's true in that sense of like, I know when there's something that's in my body still that isn't quite somaticized or isn't quite metabolized or released or whatever it is. And sort of, you know, it does take a little bit of time and thank goodness for me, I have enough practices and awareness around sort of recognizing, um, when the bigger, macro-micro sort of aggressions are happening. Um, and as someone who has a lot of light-skinned racial advantage as a multi-ethnic person, I have not sustained some of the kinds of real micro-macro, you know, aggressions and, and just frame, frankly prejudice and racism that I know some of my um, Black brothers and sisters do. Um, and so this idea of do you want to say something? Well, I was
2: gonna, what I was going to say is that one of the one of the unfortunate aspects of addressing these issues that we kind of goes back to what we we're talking about earlier is that the, the the Western view of mental health service delivery, or the Western view of education, the Western view of even parenting, we're not providing enough of the kinds of experiences that would reverse some of those changes. Because what we know is the major way that these changes in your body will be reversed is through touch. Touch and somatosensory, really sort of somatosensory experience. But in as you were growing up and going to, whether it was public school, do we touch our little kids? No. You know, little kids go through the, the day with much less touch than they used to go through, than they're supposed to go through the day with. And and when you go to a mental health provider, and let's say that you've got anxiety or depression, is that mental health provider supposed to touch you? Oh, no. In fact, the major model is oh, you don't touch your patients. And so all kinds of things that we know actually would reverse the physiology all the way down to the chromosomes of, of these problems we view as fringe yeah and and we don't provide
1: yeah and I think you know to sort of unpack this and and, and go a little further I see that as a consequence of whiteness what I'm calling whiteness you're nodding and I, I guess you know and 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 when I say that what I sort of mean by that is the system that has been set up by frankly certain, White men early on, back in the day, as yep. colonizers and as settlers, to bring in um, the kind of wealth generation that is required. Um, to gain, you know, financial or economic gain, um, that that uses extractive and exploitative labor practices um, in order to do that. So, you know, a lot for me and none for you, and and that and that there's something in that systemization, systemization over centuries that had been legally enforced, and that then and that race was created as the division as the division, to keep masses of people from being in that place of belonging together. That the human inclination and and sort of way of being around solidarity of we're all laboring here, this stinks. These guys are trying to take everything from us let's connect that that was what race was constructed in response to, to say, no, no, you who are white and more like us are going to be entitled to certain kinds of benefits. Whereas you who have darker levels of melanin or greater levels of melanin are not going to be able to have access to that. And furthermore, we're going to dehumanize you in particular ways. And so hearing you say this, I'm wondering if you can sort of point to where maybe this model, this system that even is still what we exist in, we've inherited, like it or not, is alive in these ways and how that then plays out and what people might need to interrogate about whiteness in the therapeutic setting in this way, because it's about a dominance as opposed to this collective connective piece that you're talking about where people are touching and belonging that you feel is really the root of what would be healing
2: for everyone. Right. Well, there's a, one of the, um, the, there were several waves of uh, immigration of white men that came to North America. And the first two most powerful of these waves were dominated by people who were puritanical or Protestant in their beliefs, which included just very, very rigid, you know, practices around touch, uh, around spoiling children, very harsh disciplinary practices around raising children. Um, And, you know, we there's a whole bunch of fascinating things about, you know, uh, sort of undermining healthy attachment behaviors of, of a mother.
1: Well even wow. isn't it John Bowlby who ended up having to rec- right? like you
2: tell well, me but well but you know this and you know one of the things that he I think did that was really excellent was observed and wrote a lot about this but if you if, before this if you look at rearing practices in sort of Western Europe, they were brutal and and it it raises individuals who are going to have difficulty with empathy mm. and so the, the part of your brain that makes you feel connected to another person and compassionate for another person is basically organized early in life as a function of the quality of your caregiving experience but if you're being raised in an environment that says you're spoiling a child if you go to them when they cry if you should raise them in the dark, which is what was the most common belief about infants, that you know you're raising individuals who are going to be—if they're the young men—that's that sort of uh, hands off, don't cry, be strong, uh, all of that stuff is just going to reinforce this disengaged, um, cold way of interacting with other human beings. Non-empathetic. Non-empathetic. Now, then you couple that with this, is that when you're growing up as an infant, and you have to kind of go way, way back and think about this, that that human beings, you know, 100,000 years ago, almost all human beings lived in really small groups, 50 to 60 people, 80 people, and these groups, these little clans might have been affiliated with other clans to create sort of a larger sort of kinship tribe. But by and large, you lived in these small groups. And when you're growing up as an infant, your brain is storing all kinds of attributes of safe and familiar people in your group. Now, the major predator for that tribe, the major competitor was another tribe that was competing for the same hunting grounds, was competing for the same limited resources because calories were very limited resource in the early history of humanity. And so if you ran into somebody out hunting who looked a little bit different from you and had attributes that were different from your tribe, spoke differently, wore different garb, may have a slightly different skin color, your brain would automatically view them with as a potential threat as opposed to somebody to feel like you should connect with them. And so the human brain has this very powerful us or them mechanism. When you meet somebody who has attributes that are different from your people, your brain automatically will default to a defensive stance. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean you're racist. It just means you're defensive.
1: Well, your physiology is saying, I need to protect myself.
2: Right. This, I don't know who you are. I don't know if I can trust you. My default is I can't trust you. Instead of the default being, hey, people, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. Default is like, uh-oh. Now, the problem is if that gets coupled with a hateful belief or a, a racist set of beliefs, that becomes a very powerful reason to marginalize another people and dehumanize them, and so this is—I mean, if you look at the name of—I don't know—for example, the Inuit. Inuit means humans, uh, and and if you look at the, the Cheyenne name for the Cheyenne means mm-hmm. the people. Uh-huh. The Lakota name for the Lakota means the—you know—we are the humans. The Lakota name for other tribes are in are dehumanizing, and yeah. so. This is what human beings have always created in us and them. And one of the easiest ways to do that is with skin color. Because it's, because the, the human brain, you look at all this, the way we make sense out of the world, the most powerful sensory input it, that our brain pays attention to is vision. So if we see differences that are visual, they have more valence, more power. It's, it's, um, And and so it's a lot easier to take somebody's brain and say, hey, that person with skin color that's darker than you is different from you as opposed to that person who has a different form of uh, forming relationships and they're not as warm, they're different from you. Your brain goes, hey, you're the same skin color as me. You're hateful. That's fine. Um, (laughs) You're white, though, so we're buddies. Yeah. And I think that that these internal physiological biases about You know, early developmental experiences, the physiology of creating an us and them, you know, skin color, and then you just couple that with some hateful beliefs, and it really just it takes off. It's sort of like the perfect storm.
1: Yeah, it's so wonderful but horrific to hear you describe it. And, And and it's and I also want to emphasize that you know the hateful beliefs are systematized and strategically reinforced over centuries through policies that perpetuate this system of division in service to not belonging, in service to divide and conquer, in service to extraction and subjugation. So just sort of more from that policy macro lens, if you will. And what you're talking about is precisely important. And that it's not like we couldn't possibly ever change our beliefs. It's that there's been a very intentional, very sustained, very strategic, very ongoing Campaign, if you will, to create legal structures and systems to make sure we continue to have these particular
2: experiences and imprintings. And and that's been reinforced by the media. I mean, when I was growing up, I think something like 80% of the African American men that were portrayed on television were criminals. And so, and here's the thing about the brain: you, you, your brain's organized from the bottom to the top. The top part is the cortex that tells time. It's kind of the smart part of your brain. But when you watch these television shows when you're a little kid, you start to make associations in deeper parts of your brain. So you can have in one part of your brain that, oh, you know, I know that it's not right to judge somebody by their skin color, should be the content of the character, right? Everybody has that little blurb up there in their cortex. But if you've got down in the lower parts of your brain Literally years and years and years and years of being exposed to biased television, you have what we call implicit bias. And so you'll see a kid on the street, and if they're Caucasian and they're dressed a certain way, you'll think of them differently than a black kid who's dressed the exact same way. You'll go, "Oh, I got be to better watch out for that kid. Keep my eyes on him." And it's it's that this is what we have to fight against. Right. We have to recognize that we all have elements of these toxic narratives in our head that we should start to become aware of. Right. And, and change. Right. Now, most yeah. people, there's a lot of people out there, particularly people that are very, you know, the top part of their brains very liberal. Right. Oh I, don't, <laughs> yes. oh, I don't have a <laughs> yes. bone in my body. Right? right. Yeah. The reality is they've got the same shit. Right. And, Cause they grew up in our society and, and, the, there's going to be some of the hardest to, to engage. In. And 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 Dr. Martin Luther King, the Reverend Dr.
1: Martin Luther King, talks about and says that it's really the white liberal that's the one he's concerned with. You know, and, and the idea that you know, and that's been reinforced again and again. And and in the work that I've been trying to do, I try to use some of what you're bringing, which is the very specific physiological, neurological, you know subcortical synaptic learnings in that deeper part in terms of our limbic learnings, how we make meaning in the world, understanding that we are in many ways our intergenerational, but even our local sitting in the living room at 10 years old watching television imprintings, and that those influence how we then have perspective, take perspective, and and how we see ourselves in relation to others. And that that awareness, bringing awareness to it, as you say, is part of the first step to saying, all right, I am going to be imprinted because right now the way that this society is structured, I am going to be imprinted how and what is imprinting me, how aware am I of that? And then this is the next piece, how am I not going to be stuck in maybe shame or defensiveness or dismissiveness around this piece that you just said, which is, I'm not that. I'm not racist. And 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 why being anti-racist, which is what I invite people to be, is to actually just call out and name, hey, you know what? This is it we live in a world where there is this kind of imprinting, subjugation, oppression, whatever it is, and that we're physiological beings that receive that and then it's our job to be aware of that and then be anti-racist and not assume that we're non-racist because that's just going to be us running the software program that we've gotten, which we just said, which you just know uh, is going to be predicated on a domination narrative, which we don't want.
2: Right. And this is why I think, one of the most important things, kind of going back to our conversation before we started taking that one of the most powerful things you can do to kind of begin to change these deeper associations you have is have real experience. You know, this is, racism isn't something that you're going to read yourself out of. You know, you, you need to actually have real life experiences and And if you're lucky enough, you may have a friend or a colleague who who's willing to mentor you, but you have to recognize that you're going to be a mentee. You don't know shit about what their world is like. And yeah. so be open. be open to learning. and And I have to say, I'm a very lucky man because i I have many people in the over the years who've been willing to take their time and their energy and keep trying to help. me.
1: Well, I, I appreciate that. But one of my personal experience with you and, and, you know, we've only known each other for a couple of years, but is that there's a, there's a humility there that I feel like a lot of people don't feel as though they should open the door to because they feel as though, and this kind of gets to what I was saying earlier in this conversation about shame and sort of about them making up a story about it. Well, if I'm, if I'm vulnerable or I'm tender, then maybe I'm exposed and then maybe someone's going to hurt me or exploit me or something. Whereas the other piece or the other way of looking at it, the other direct experience that you might have could be connective and generative and nourishing and, and growth producing in ways that you can't really even imagine because you already are sort of narrow, but you could, you could open to something else. And so I'm wondering if you can sort of talk about what would be the physiological places or the neurological sort of things with that could help scaffold that shame piece or that not wanting to be intimate or vulnerable or open or humble?
2: You know, I, I, one of the things that happens as you get older and, and you sort of develop mastery over something, it particularly, I found this to be true with people who develop a lot of mastery, really become experts at something it's very hard for an expert at something to admit that they're terrible at another thing. You know,
1: <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm yeah. really great at making pizza, but I stink at whatever. Sure. Yeah,
2: I, so I'm yeah. not going to do that. That's, what, um, that's, what, that's kind of what we do. We end up doing mm. the things that we're good at because we get positive feedback and we demonstrate confidence and mastery. We feel good about ourselves. But of course, what that does is it means we leave behind all those things where we really could have continued to de- develop as a person or as an athlete or as whatever. And so what I found is that I, 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 again, I don't, I don't know where this comes from, but I've just always had, um, mentors who demonstrated to me that, uh, that part of their expertise came from being vulnerable. So like the, one of the smartest guys I ever met yeah. we did in these meetings where there would be eight or nine of these really famous scientists on a big project. And of course, nobody wants to admit that they're not the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> but he would go, oh, wait a minute, I, I don't understand that at all. You've got to explain that to me. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're all going, thank God he said it because we didn't want to look like we were stupid. <laughs> but over time, I, I realized that, you know what, it's, it's actually a spring. to to show um, that you're that you're not strong, that 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 you need to develop a skill set. But I think part part of what is really necessary there honestly is that I think you have to get to some level of confidence about something about you. You know that Self esteem or self-love or be anchored enough in something that it feels safe to jump in the water and flounder around.
1: I I agree with that. And so again back to early conditioning, having grown up as a person who not heavily but lightly went, you know, through all of the catholic teachings whereas my mother and her parents went as italian americans very much Heav- heavily through um, the Catholic teachings. One thing there was original sin, meaning that, you know, she's like, you're born with a black mark on your soul. You're a six year old child and you are, you know, you, you must carry the burden of suffering of other people. And um, that is your job as a six year old child. And that is in, 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 and all of these other messages. And, The other thing that really turned my self-concept around in my 40s was the idea of basic goodness, which is the more Eastern concept that was invited by the Buddha or Buddhist teaching around, no, you have inherent dignity and self-worth. You're totally fine. There's actually nothing wrong with you And there's the causes and conditions that influence how you are. And then we can bring in the awareness to recognize those and check it out moment to moment. And that was my point of personal liberation. And that was probably about five years ago. And that opened up a whole new portal of me feeling more anchored in a secure attachment to myself that then has enabled me to go through these really, like, I'm learning all this stuff, like these horrific things. And I'm like, overwhelmed, but I'm not ashamed. I'm just like sad. Right? And then I want to do something about it but it's not like I'm bad. It's right. like, it's bad, right. you know? And there's a big difference there. And so to what you're saying, I hear you say is that, and so where does someone who has that limbic conditioning of, you know, original sin, you know I mean? You're born bad or something. They have that belief. How do they begin to unpack that?
2: Yeah. You know, I, I think that what you just said is so absolutely important that, um, and there are a lot of people who just grow up feeling inadequate, incomplete, not good enough, uh, in some way. And and of course that makes it even harder for you, as you're just talking about, to then say, "Hey, I'm going to demonstrate another area of incompetence."
1: Right, right. <laughs> I'm also right. bad at
2: this. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, right. So. It's, so again, when those folks are confronted with something they're not good at, they tend to be defensive, right? So this is what this is what like the classic narcissistic injury, right? If you feel inadequate from the time you're little, you basically will overblow and distort your importance and your power, and you'll be incredibly defensive if anybody is critical of something. That sounds familiar, but. Um, Right. Anyway, um, yes,
1: I know. We won't talk about politics.
2: <laughs> but so I do think it, it, this is a very hard thing, and this is one of the reasons I think, for example, Brene Brown's work. You know, her she talks about you know positive psychology. She talks about the inherent value. You know, recognize the goodness in yourself, and I, I and there's a lot of other people who do this. I think that's one of the reasons that she's so popular, is that so many people grow up feeling. Inadequate, somehow, and just sort of the realization that at some point that you know everybody's like has these little imperfections and nobody's perfect like they thought they were, and you know bodies aren't supposed to look like Barbie, and you know whatever right. whatever the issue, is, whether it's your body or how smart you are, or how good you are as an athlete, um, it's hard to lose those. Things. You know they're deeply ingrained, but the the, the beginning of that i think is insight that that you know i'm sure that it wasn't overnight that you made that transition from original it was
1: to- really it oh, really, really was because i got arrested and i spent a night in jail and i said there's nothing good for me here what happened and i was kind of like there was some shift that happened like i don't know what i'm doing with my life i had there was
2: like an epiphany moment
1: well it was it was something that i knew that whatever i had been doing wasn't effective And I didn't know, because I was always a seeker, what the answer was going to be. But there was something about that experience, about noticing that I was actually in prison overnight with a bunch of people who never had the kinds of opportunities that I had had in life, and that they had been there before and may be there again, and that I was, you know, trying to use whatever I had been given, but that I didn't feel like I knew what to do with. I didn't feel good about myself, right? Like I was good at a lot of things. I'd had a lot of success, but I still felt crappy about myself. And that was a portal to say like, no, stop, full stop. What are we gonna do? And that was then that receptacle that I was more open to something a little different, which became the somatic experiential kinds of work and mindfulness kinds of teachings that I then received and used to ground myself. And so when those were dropped in, and it was the neurophysiological psychoeducation piece that I learned about, Mm -hmm. I was like, well, then there's an explanation. What do you mean? There's an explanation for this. This is my body doing precisely what you just said, Bruce, which is I see threat, I think this way, I'm this way, I'm contracted, I'm rigid, I pull back or I fight or I'm aggressive. These are normal physiological responses to perceived threat. When I started to understand that, I was like, well, no wonder I'm doing these things. No wonder why they're carrying over because I don't have any awareness of why or what might that origin have been. And furthermore, you're the child trauma expert. The kids take on the control they can in order to try to fix a situation that seems overwhelming in the best adaptive way they could and carry that patterning forward behaviorally, which ceases to function well over time. And then they can't bring themselves up to date, in my experience, when I work with clients around the fact that, hey, you're 30 now, you made it, you don't have to do that thing anymore. You can tend to the parts of you that were imprinted in such a way that they only knew how to do that for survival right? And that you can start to make space for something new. So... so can I ask one question about yes, that?
2: Yes. So yes. Prior to that sort of moment when you sort of realized that you, you this...
1: I didn't have true. to believe the stories in my head about myself that I was a shitty person or that I wasn't
2: worthy. Right.
1: I didn't have right. to believe this.
2: Had you heard that people before that tried to say stuff like... No, you're not. So the whole thing therapy. is,
1: when I went to therapy, before I went to somatic therapy, I said, I'm coming here to say, why don't I understand? Why can't I take in? Why don't I believe the good things about myself that people tell me? That was my question that I went to the therapist with. And you even though she was...
2: huh? You, you had heard good things, but they kind of bounced off.
1: Well, they didn't... Experientially, they didn't sink. In, right. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't feel it. I didn't have a relationship with myself, because first of all, my self-concept was in relation to what others experience of me was. I didn't have that individuated, autonomous self-concept of, I've. Uh, you know, I'm just a, another being, and and I'm a unique being because in this systematized version of whiteness, I was too big, I was too loud, I was too articulate or gesticulating or whatever it is when I was a TV news anchor, my hair was too frizzy, my whatever it was, I didn't fit that Barbie that you just mentioned. And so therefore I was othered in that system. And then I sort of took it on like, well, wait, if I did my hair differently or if I lost weight and then I, you know, and so then it, then I take it on, but that goes back to your point of an early attachment injury of what I learned with my preoccupied attachment from my dad, right? Right dangle a carrot, take it away, dangle a carrot, take it away. And me always trying to figure it out and lean in, as opposed to just saying, he's not able to love you, babe. Sorry, cut your losses, move on. So, and and you're okay. It's not about you. It's about whatever his stuff is. And we want to talk about intergenerational racial trauma. He had it. And then some. So I guess what I, to your point is, um, I didn't, get it when people said that about me it wasn't enough it was a little bit of a band-aid but not really and I guess that's why I'm sort of proselytizing around this like no understand get psychoeducation understand the physiology because you can release yourself and I even said to someone once who's a friend of our family's I said if I gave you a Christmas present and I stuck it under the tree that said there's nothing wrong with you and it's a box with a nice big bow and that's what it was would you open it up she said no way <laughs> oh. I said, why? She said, no, it's just too foreign. It's too unfamiliar. I don't know what's in there. And she's a hard charging head of the hospital's, you know, management or whatever. It was too much for her to consider what it would be like to actually be kind in that way to herself, because I think she thought it went along with losing her edge. And I keep on trying to work with people in that subcortical relational way somatically to notice that. Actually, there can be both. Like, you don't have to lose your well,
2: edge. There are a lot of people like that, though, right? I mean, who, it's
1: dangerous.
2: And they use they use that as fuel to kind of drive them. And then they're worried that if they don't have that fuel, that they're not going to be successful. Yeah.
1: But then how does that happen when you're in the helping professions and you use that in a therapeutic encounter or in administrative capacity?
2: Yeah. Well, you just basically participate in the transgenerational passage of pathological sort of perspective is what happens. Um, and we see it all over. I mean, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about human beings is that we create systems that reflect us. And, um, you know, if you have, uh, you know, a whole bunch of people who are um, basically believe in the superiority of white people and believe that there are, that slavery is an acceptable form of, uh, of, you know, economy and that, uh, and that there are certain people are better than others. You know, the, the United States was founded by people that believe that. And it's even permeates almost the Constitution. It's been tweaked a little bit. But to this day, the individual, there's nothing in the Constitution that allows the individual vote to elect the president. We, that's delegated to people who are above the individual elect person. It's, it's the electors, which are the electoral college. Yeah. Mm hmm. And, which Go is ahead. sort of a remnant of, you know, somebody, I was on a podcast the other day about somebody talking about the, that we made the statement that they were worried that that the United States was going was losing its ability to be a democracy. And I said, well, we're not, I don't know, we're, we're not a democracy. I don't know where you, where did you get the idea that we're a democracy? Yeah. And I, I still, I think people still have that fundamental misunderstanding that the United States is, is not, it is not a, it's not a representative. Yeah. Yeah. So. And
1: as we sort of wind down, I mean, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go vote,
2: because you should. No, it means you should go vote. Yes. But it also means that your vote is basically going to be, uh, it's sort of like Catholicism. You can't talk directly to God. You have to talk through a mediator, right?
1: They changed that.
2: You used to be able to. No,
1: no, you used to be able to, and then they made you talk through the mediator. Right. It wasn't like that in the beginning. Right, so, again, exactly. these structures of oppression.
2: Exactly. Um, so, it's sort of we have to basically elect somebody through a mediator. You know, we can't. You know, but um, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, I interrupted you. I can't remember what I said. <laughs>
1: Well, you were just basically saying when I said, you know, it's vo- it's you know, voting the Electoral College and you're saying yes, we still need
2: to be in our participatory right. system to We do. We, do. we have we, we, we have to vote and I think we need to recognize that we the system needs to continue to evolve and change. And um, so and I think part of that will be ultimately that if we really want to become a democracy, we've we've got to let people's votes elect. Who we're voting for right If we vote for president then our votes should go.
1: Yes yes and I and I so appreciate like from where we started our conversation talking about this connective collective land-based sort of present moment experiential healing somatic, uh, somatosensory experience in the Maori area, sort of talking about the, the neurophysiology of what does it mean to sort of have this fear, threat, tribal sort of othering kind of back in our bones? What does it mean to have the attachment ruptures that you have as a white European that then has to come over to the United States or whatever it was at the time, Turtle Island, but now is the U.S. As a colonizer, having had that like really difficult, divisive, harsh parenting and to not have felt like there was anything warm and fuzzy there for you when that's really what kids need? And then how does that then, like you say, when married with systems of power and racial difference around our sense door of visual taking in, um, you know, really then continue into what becomes implicit bias. And then the ways in which our cortex and our upper brain and our lower sort of, um, you know, deeper, more evolutionary brain are sort of at odds sometimes and how awareness can help, you know, sort of intervene there. And that one of the scaffolds might very well be feeling okay enough about yourself so that you can be vulnerable and humble enough to be teachable to a mentor that's trustworthy around these issues about systemic racism or whatever it is and start to lean in and that having direct experiences, I heard you say, relationally with people who are different that are positive and sustaining, different meaning that they look different than you in this case, that that is part of what the healing can be. Is that a fair recap of our
2: time? That was an amazing recap. (laughs)
1: <laughs> wow. That's
2: crazy. That was, you just,
1: do you feel met uh, yeah, that was
2: really
1: do you, no I, I i do that with clients sometimes and they're just like how do you remember that and i'm just like well because i'm listening i'm paying attention i'm involved i care i want to be here with you
2: well I, it comes across well i can, I can
1: feel you're the you're the you're the mensch so um i just want to say again um the neurosequential model the child trauma academy um bruce offers up so many wonderful teachings for people who uh want to partake avid twitter
2: (laughs) tweeter. um although (laughs) we've talked about the problems with social media i I won't get involved in arguments (laughs) in what i I won't get involved in twitter arguments no good all right Good. I'll, I'll post a nice photo there. I'll post some photos.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. No. That's that's beautiful. And and can you share any last parting words in terms of what you know, sort of what you do and what you know in terms of child attachment trauma, the brain, neuroscience, those early attachment experiences, and racism, and sort of undoing that and the embodiment. Do you have any parting words around any of that for listeners or viewers? Uh,
2: I, I think that the most important thing is if you're listening and you have the opportunity with your own children or kids you know give them opportunities to spend time with people who are different from you know introduce them to different kinds of foods and and you know let them play at the park with you know with kids that are different color the the more diversity that your children uh have an opportunity to experience the stronger they will be they'll be smarter they'll be more compassionate and um uh, It'll be for the better of our future. And, and, you know, ultimately, as a species, if we don't figure out how to do this well, we're not gonna, you know, we'll just end up fighting. And, um, I think that the other pressures on in the natural world are, are really going to require that we get our stuff together as a species because we've, we've strained to the max the resources of our planet. And, um, yeah, I think these issues will only be solved. And work together. That these issues will not be solved. What until we can figure out how to work together.
1: Until we can figure out how to work together, collaboration. Yeah, yeah.
2: we do yeah. a little bit too much. A little, a little bit too much us and them. And uh, if we can figure out, you know, recognize that that's sort of a a weakness in our species, and 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 work around it, which I which I know we can. Um, I think that the result will be good things. Beautiful. I love the hopeful,
1: the note that we're ending on, which I know we can. Um, have faith in humanity, despite our craziness. Right. Uh, Dr. Bruce Perry, it's such a pleasure seeing you. Really delighted. And um, thank you so much for honoring us with your presence today on ReRooted. Uh, so appreciate your time.
2: Thank you so much for having me and keep up the good work. Thank you.